Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. So this is an additional podcast for the week, and it's going to showcase one of our Grand Rounds talks. This one's from Jeremy Faust, and it was entitled Music in Emergency Medicine. Now, I think everybody knows Jeremy from the Foamcast podcast, and Jeremy is an absolutely brilliant speaker. This is a very unique topic, so we decided to publish it in the full length. It's about 40 minutes long. A couple of things to point out with this talk. There were some areas where Jeremy played some video with no audio, and we cut those out. There was also a section where he played an excerpt from a movie from Sony Pictures, which we had to cut out as well. So there might be some choppiness in there, but I think the overarching messages that Jeremy has are really critically important for emergency physicians to know. So with no further ado, here's Jeremy Faust, Music in Emergency Medicine. Tony, thanks so much. Awesome to be here. Christy, good to see you. It's been a few minutes. Um, I asked uh, Ruben Strayer, What's the difference between Sinai and Bellevue? So it's pretty much the same, except the Bellevue residents work much harder than you. So, like, okay. Um, I don't know what to do with that. It's like, no, you work pretty hard, but they're just better. Okay. All right. And then I did. And then I started talking like him because you can't help it. You're like, okay, all right. <laughs> Very infectious. Um, so this is uh, music and emergency medicine, how we can change our training and our practice. And I'm going to just tell you how I got to this talk. So um, I, when I was 20 years old, I was uh, doing a summer research at UCSF, and I'm just in the library. And uh, I was a piano, a piano player and a singer, and I like, wrote some music. I was a music major, pre-med. And there's this article about how the human voice works. And it's written by a guy who's an MD and who's also a doctor of musical arts. Conductor and he sings, and I thought that's going to be me. So my whole kind of life was like kind of directed towards, I guess, this moment maybe. So <laughs> if it doesn't go well, I'll be crying. Uh, but uh, so, but I did, I did try to keep this balance going, and I did a lot of music during med school and even during residency, um, and it definitely, you know, kept me kind of like going. Um, but people always say, oh, what do you like, sing to your patients? And I find that that's a bad idea um, when they want opiates. So that's not what this talk is really about. But this, does, this talk does kind of marry a few things, which is my love for music, uh, my love for emergency medicine, which is, I think, something that people know that I have. Um, and then kind of like a, this audience, a, a progressive audience that sort of looks for different ways of thinking about things. So this is kind of exciting for me. So let's see how it goes. Uh, so you should listen to Foamcast because Lauren Lefebvre is my co-host, and she has a great drawl. Um, and I asked Twitter uh, about music, and they said, well, music is good for in terms of music and medicine, um, because it kind of opens up a soft side, and there's some technical skills you develop as a musician, maybe. Uh, it helps with the attention to focus and detail and humanism. Um, and musicians are trained to listen, and so doctors should be too. And uh, I don't think we're trained to listen all that well. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. So this is a three-part talk. One, the first is performance, the second is sort of pedagogy of how we learn, and the last is about sort of how we can put some musical things into practice without our patients trying to stab us, which is always a good combination as well. Um, so let's just start with first impression. Um, there's a great paper uh, in this music journal, when first impression counts, it's called Music Performers Audience and the Evaluation of Stage Entrance Behavior, like how you walk on stage has been studied. And so what they did was, they, they went to the top competitions in the world, violin and piano competitions, and they basically just showed people in the survey videos of people walking on stage. 
and they asked them to write like what's good, what's not, and they came down to the six things that kind of matter for good entrance. Nodding, like, <laughs> direction of gaze, so you don't want to be like looking straight at the ground. Uh, touch, don't touch yourself. <laughs> if there's a more generalizable finding in, in the literature, I don't know what is. Um, your stance width, your, your posture, your step size, I mean, this is really nitty gritty. And how resolute you look. Now, think about this. I mean, every day we, we make an entrance. What is emergency medicine? But every single day we make a first impression. We make first impressions for a living. And so we should learn from what these musicians are doing. So they actually looked at two ideas. The people on the left were the ones who said, you know what, after that entrance, stop. I do not want to hear what this person has to say musically. So just imagine, you walk in, and they're like, I have no interest in what you have to say musically because of your entrance. And I don't think that we're too far from that. I think we've all come to the bedside and met a patient who's like, nope. Or we've met a patient who's like, oh, you look like someone who cares. And so here are the 20 some odd percent of people who said, stop. And what they, the green and the, and the blue on the right, these are people who said, oh, this is a, kind of an acceptable entrance or an inappropriate entrance, stop. So we don't care. For the people who said, you know what, I want to hear about this, I want to hear from this person, they all made appropriate or acceptable entrances almost to almost to a key. So what can we learn about this, right? Well, here's the first correlation. Predictors of parent satisfaction in pediatric lack repair has to do with how you look, how you present yourself, your confidence. It has very little to do with your stitching technique, actually. So I'm going to read for the last time. Provider performance, communication, caring attitude, confidence, and hygiene is the strongest predictor of excellent parent satisfaction for PEDS patients in the ED visits for lap repairs. So basically, it's just your decorum. It's not your one-handed ties, which bothers me because I practice. But you know, you have to know this. Um, so this is Yo-Yo Ma, and he is certainly one of the best cellists in the world. But he is definitely the most famous cellist in the world. And the reason is this picture. When he walks into a room, he is just, just oozing with enthusiasm and excitement for what he's about to do. And, and he does it when he plays, and it's just it's so infectious to watch. So we've got to be a little more like him. So the next thing is really about listening. And you know, how do we listen? It seems kind of obvious. We, we, we know we hear, hearing is one thing and listening is another. We've heard this sort of thing. Um, what skills do we use when we listen? What skills do we not use? I mean, we certainly are hearing. Are we tasting when we listen? And I would actually argue we smell when we listen. If, I, if a patient says to me, I don't smoke, and they smell like smoke, I'm like, yeah, I hear you. You smoke. Right? So listening is a very multifaceted thing. And which is more important, sound or visual, or other, other input? And so when we ask professional musicians this question, what's more important when you're judging a music competition, uh, sound or, or like appearance, 96% of the music pros said, oh, the sound, come on, the sound. I mean, we're musicians, folks, right? So let's find out if that's true. Great paper from the students of National Academy of Sciences. So which would you want? Let's say you're a judge of a music competition. Here's the design. I'm going to show you clips of three finalists in this competition. Okay? And you get to choose audio clips only to judge the winner. And by the way, these are like six second clips. This is like snap judgment. You want video clips, silent video. You're going to judge the competition on silent video, watching them. A mime could do this. A mime could literally do this. Or do you want the maximum information, audio and visual clips? So let's try it. This is where I really hope the sound works. So here, actually, if you have like a pen or an iPhone or a, or, or a memory at all, um, try to think of which which of the next three clips do you think is the winner. 
So, same players. Video only. Alright, now, now, now just to really confuse you, to really confuse you, here's audio and video together. See if your vote changes. Just pull yourself, like who, who's, who's in the lead so far? Will this change, will this change anything? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So three one. 
but I don't think you would have gotten there before this fashion piece. Um, so, yeah. I mean, the thing is, this guy has no passion. He just has hair. <laughs> this guy is just having trouble, I guess. I don't know. I like her, too. She's like, eh. She's like, eh, no. And he's just like, the head movements, and, you know. So, by the way, I lied to you. The name of the study is called Sight Over Sound in the Production of Music Performance. I don't want to give it away. Um, so, actually, it's great. They did a ton of other experiments. It's actually a really fascinating paper. All right, so how can we apply this? Um, we can use this when we're speaking to our patients, right? I mean, we, we don't just listen, we look. And a lot of things that you don't even realize you do, you do. So, for example, if someone comes in and they have, like, crushing chest pain, and their spouse is, like, sitting there, like, man. You look at the spouse, and you're like, in your mind, you're like, why am I not scared about this guy? And it's because the spouse has been there. They've been there before. Like, yeah, this is just like part of the course. Don't even worry about it. And so the information we're getting is so global, but we need to be aware of that so we can make better judgments. So we can actually do this. Performance is persuasion, right? When you walk in or how you kind of present yourself. We already saw how that makes a difference. Listening is multisensory, and we really underappreciate visual information. Okay, so that's part one. So part two is pedagogy, preparation, and practice. So how can we sort of learn from musicians to get better at what we do? Um, and so there's kind of, these following quotations are three approaches to practicing. Okay? The first one you're familiar with. See one, do one, teach one. That's what we do. We're very proud of this. Oh yeah, medicine, hardcore. See one, do one, teach one. Yeah. <laughs> Amateurs practice until they get it right. Professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. Well suddenly see one, do one seems pretty lame. If I don't practice for one day, I know it. If I don't practice for two days, my critics know it. If I miss three days, the audience knows it. This is one of the greatest pianists of the last century. So which one are we doing? Okay, so here's a study that's perfect for this talk. Music lessons, revealing medicine's learning culture through comparison with that of music. Thank you, Watling et al. Like, okay, that's great to have this talk, this paper. And they asked med students, residents, and music students what matters in pedagogy to them, and the differences are pretty striking. Okay, so pedagogical approach. Med students, learn by doing. Let's get in there, do it. Music students, learn by lesson. They want to be training and being taught and being working on it all the time. They would never go to Carnegie Hall without practicing baby lots. Performance goal, competence. I mean, even the word, core competency. I mean, that's just almost insulting, right? Core competency. How about core excellence? How about saving our patients' lives because we know what the hell we're doing? Even better. Music students know that if I'm not, I'm not better than the next guy, I'm not getting sold up. I'm not going to get the job. I'm going to be not doing music for a living, which is not why they went to Juilliard. How about ideal teacher? What kind of teacher do medical students want versus music students? Well, medical students want the clinical master. They don't care about pedagogy. Oh, I studied with so-and-so, some big person. Big name. Debate. Oh, yeah, I work with debate. I don't know. Is he a good teacher? He's famous. He's got some device to debate. Um, music students, teaching more important than performance. If you go to Juilliard, they have a bunch of really famous piano teachers. Now these people were actually fairly successful musicians in, you know, in their time, but they, they are famous teachers. And you know, they, occasionally someone comes in and they, have, they give like a, a one-off master class from some famous person. But the Juilliard students want someone who's going to teach them how to play in a healthy manner because they've got to do it six to eight hours a day. They don't care what you know the, the current 
you know, break cannabis, you may know accidents. You may want someone who says, look, the way you're holding your elbows is going to kill you in five years, so let's not do that. So music students care about teaching performance, not fame with the teacher. And then feedback. We think that self-assessment is possible. Oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Feedback is just this thing that I, I have to deal with. Um, and when I get really good, I won't even need it at all. Because you know, I'll be good. Music students, external review is essential. Great article from The New Yorker a couple years ago, a few years ago, by Absolute Monday. Personal best, top athletes and singers have coaches, should, should you? And I love the anecdote, Nick's smart guy. Um, he noticed that people like Renee Fleming, one of the most famous opera singers in the world, she goes to her coach still to this day. When she has a new piece, she works it up with a coach. Go to, the, go to the Olympics and watch the world record breakers. Usain Bolt has a coach. His coach is not better than he is, right? His coach is not, he's worse, right? But you know, <laughs> uh, If the coach was better, he'd be doing it, right? Uh, but he would never go without a coach. And so what Gawande did was, 10 years into being an attending, he invited one of his old mentors into the OR and said, watch me, what am I doing wrong? What can I do differently? And what he found out was a couple of things. One, he's like, okay, the way you're standing during 95% of your time is blocking the view of your residents. So they can't see what you're doing. If you just move this way, you're going to be a better teacher. Does, does it bother you to move that way? He's like, no. It's like, well, then just change it. Okay. That was it. Ten years of wasted, you know, done, fixed. And he also noticed a few technical things. Look, the way you're moving this way, just a few fixes. So the idea of us having a coach or a consultant. Now, we're a little bit lucky, right? Because as we start our careers and start getting attending, a lot of times you can go down and say, hey, I got a question. You can talk to someone more experienced. So we kind of actually have an, an opportunity to insight you, kind of get those consults and, and get that feedback kind of in real time. So we should be doing this as well. It's a great, great idea. Okay, so then let's talk about more a different pedag pedag uh, pedagogical thing, which is stress inoculation. Big topic, right? Stress inoculation. You got to be tough. You got to be good. You got to be ready. You can't, you can't get scared. You got to do it. Go. A, we're prepared, but we're just nervous. That's what it is. The reason I'm, I'm scared to do that crank is that I really know what I'm doing, but I'm really just nervous. I don't think so. We're unprepared, and we know it. So stress is, a correct, is your body correctly diagnosing your incompetence. <laughs> right? And now, if you've done 100 cranks, and you're nervous and you're having trouble, fine, go to see a performance psychologist. I, I, I think that's going to happen in about two to five percent of us. But the rest of us, until we've done 100, and it can even be 100 on mannequins, I have the tubing at home that I do while I'm watching like television, I'm like, until we've done 100 of these, we're not, we're not stressed out, we're just incompetent. And the musicians are on this, they would never do this, right? They will always go to performance ready to go. Okay, so where's the tough love, right? Why aren't we getting, why aren't we getting trained this way? We're getting baby. So we need to like change how we learn, change how we teach in the future. Well, when it's our turn, okay? Some musicians do this. I'm going to see if I can just turn this up a little bit. So how do musicians get to this level? And uh, I wanted to know. So um, I asked a friend of mine to learn a piece of music for me. So I, I, I asked, have you played this piece before? It's the Sonata by Carl Vine. This piece is so hard that they basically banned it in a lot of competitions because everyone should do it. It's like, okay, yeah, you can play the violin. This is the top level anyway, so no more. And uh, when one does music, this is the first page of the score, and it's fast and it's nonstop. So we're going to watch my friend Steve learn this piece in three clips. So I, I gave him a camera, or I filmed him the first day, 
and I left my camera at his house and just said, turn it on when you practice, and just show me how you kind of get into this thing. So I got three like, one-minute clips, and we'll sort of see. Um, it's, it's hopefully like not watching paint dry. It's like you'll sort of get into like what he's getting into. Um, you tell me how that works. Have you ever been to a painter?
I really don't. And I, I've started to do this, and I, I, even, even I'm not doing it because no one's telling me to do this. I don't have uh, this, you know, this teacher at Whiplash yelling at me. Um, training conditions, right? I mean, he plays it fast, he plays it slow. Derek Jeter, all these guys, they put the weight on the bat, right, so that when they take it off, it feels good. That's how we should do with our procedures. Swimmers, they use these drag suits, and then they take them off, and then they feel like they're just flying. Okay? So we should be practicing in conditions that are like the way we work, conditions that are easier, conditions that are harder. So here's a, a chest tube blindfolded. I like that. Um, there's a, I, I got a video of us, uh, you know the ultrasound uh, guided IVs, you get the phantom gel, you can practice with a little gel kit. So I, I got mine on a, on a shaker, but I got them all out. So now I'm doing them with the rotor. So I got that. I, I got to get that video in the this, in this, in this slide set that I haven't done yet. That's what I think we need to be doing. Uh, before we take our intern to say, here's an 18 gauge needle, stick it in a vein, please, of this patient who has done several IV drugs in their life. So, yeah. All right, well, who's on to this, right? Guess who's on to this? Um, this you know, he's good at everything, including stealing my thunder. Um, I filmed this like three years ago. Micro skills of central lines. I have this video sitting on my, on my computer. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to spring Bellevue. Like, on never before seen footage, blind guard, like doing these procedures. And then, like, over the weekend, like, this weekend, he released it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, thanks, jerk. <laughs> so, Jeremy and I have been talking about breaking down the micro skills of central line placement. And this is a way to deliberately practice this technique in a way that you're not dealing with a patient, in a way that you can actually get skill mastery by breaking it down into a piece and getting uh, full expertise at that piece before you embrace the whole and do this on a repetition. So we're going to, we're going to talk about today is just a few of the microscopes that go into central line placement. It's really extrapolatable to cellular technique in general. So the first micro skill is learning syringe manipulation in the setting of being able to withdraw the plunger back. Because once you enter through the skin during a central line, you're supposed to be exerting constant negative pressure on the plunger. Uh, at the same time, you're able to move in and out, you know, change your direction depending on what the ultrasound is showing. And you have to be able to do that. So the finger motion is thumb on the plunger, and then I have my index finger and middle finger on the, uh, I, I say the index middle finger on the plunger and the thumb on the actual uh, extrusion of the syringe itself. Uh, there's other ways to do this. This is the way I find to be easiest, but you need to practice and get really good at it. What's a fun way to try this with is actually you get like an orange or something and just pop it in there and just practice moving in and out while trying to exert negative pressure on the plunger. And this micro skill is you're at the point where you've already entered the skin and you've gotten your first flashback into your hub. Now what you need to do is you need to disconnect the syringe from the needle and put a wire in it. And this is the micro skill I think people fail at most. And so what you need to be able to do is stabilize the needle in such a way that there is no movement at all, both the needle tip in the vessel causing vascular trauma, or the hub uh, that might push the needle in a little bit further and now you won't be able to pass the wire or actually pull it out of the vessel itself. So very similar to the bridge you use when playing pool, you want as maximally stable as possible. And when you look at a good pool player, they're always going to have as much of a hand in contact with the felt as possible because that's going to give them the most stable bridge. And whether they have an open bridge or a closed bridge, you'll always see that their entire hypothenar eminence 
is touching the table, and that these three fingers are inevitably spread as far as possible into a beautiful tripod. And so open bridge, closed bridge, it's the same thing for placing the uh, central line needle stabilization. So you get in there, you get your flash. What you want to do is, again, place your hypothenar eminence on the patient's body. That's the equivalent of the pool table felt. And what that's going to do is a few things. It's going to give you a stable base. Also, if the patient moves while you're trying to do this procedure, your hand is now part of their body, and the hub of the needle will stay in its stable position even as the patient moves back and forth. So spread, hypothenar eminence touching the patient, beautiful stable base, thumb and index finger at the hub of the needle. So this is what I have done. Now, when you do this properly, what you should be able to do is, you know, actually smack your hand, move the table, and the needle hub does not move. That's how you know you've gotten to the point where the micro skill is complete. Now, the next step is actually disengaging the syringe from the hub of the needle without moving it. That's the next skill. Now, you might say, oh, this is easy, and it, it is, but this is where a lot of the scripts happens. What happens is, inevitably, it gets pushed in just a little bit, or it gets pulled out just a little bit, and that's enough to dislodge the location of the needle tip. So you would have to be incredibly tight, holding it ready, and now it's actually a twisting motion. And you should just practice time and time again, you know, a couple hundred, a couple thousand times, to the point where you can disengage the hub of a needle without causing any movement to the hub. And when you can do that, then you're ready to move on to the next microscope. For instance, if you lose this thing, so cool. well, now you're stuck with a jig tip. And you lose the you blue tip, right? Yeah, you manipulation. And you try to turn it upside down, and you know, you can use the back portion of the wire. It's not as safe, but it's still uh, not designed to true for the best. This is acceptable, and sometimes you have to do that. But the J tip is safer um, because it's actually a rounded edge in the vessel. So, what do you do in those circumstances? Well, you want to straighten the J tip. And what you can do is if you hold the wire steady, you can actually advance the coil while leaving the wire stationary. So the movement is, you actually grip the wire portion at your hypothenar eminence uh, with your pinky and in, uh, ring finger, you know, digits four and five, and you lock it to your hand. So now it's locked to my hand. Now with my thumb and index finger, I advance the coil. And so that's the movement. And hurts. now this is nice if you lose that blue thing, you know, you have your hub there, and you've lost your blue thing. Well, oh, no problem. I, I got a straight, you know, wire right there that now I can advance. So that's, right. so that's micro skills on central line placement. So when you, I, I did that a bunch of home. This one, and it, it hurts at first, right? I mean, like the first few days, I was just like getting like like a guitar, like getting calluses. But actually, you get really good at this, and it's very helpful. Um, it just helps you with manipulation in general. So that's a new podcast that Weinberg's got out. No thanks. For stealing my thunder. Um, so then, then, really, the question is like, okay, but is there any evidence that doing this will actually help us? And the answer is actually yes. Just in, in medical education in general, we know that uh, these kinds of techniques will work if we do them. Um, so here's actually the concept of really spaced repetition, right? So just this is a paper called "Improving the uh, Impact of Didactic Resident Training with Spaced Education." And basically, what they did was this: they took a bunch of uh, students and residents, and they had a big pretest. They all did about the same, um, and then uh, they basically put them in two groups: the staged repetition group, study for two weeks with practice questions. If you get them wrong, we'll give them to them again. And the other group said to study for the freaking exam, which is least. Um, and then so then 
few weeks later, they take the test again. And the ones who did spatial repetition perform better, significantly, if I'm not showing the error bars. Um, and with respect to the questions that were related to the content that they were actually studying, and even a little better on um, questions that weren't matched to the exact topic. So the idea of spatial repetition doing things over and over and over again actually leads to better test scores. And on boards, you know, five points are actually something. Um, so and there's a, it's an absolutely like gargantuan review of, uh, of learning techniques uh, that you should just read it. It's a great paper. Uh, but here's what works. Spatial repetition, practice tests. We know that practice tests actually work. Note-taking, um, that does not work. Uh, highlighting, definitely does not work. But spatial repetition and practice tests work. And mnemonics actually fail in, in, in a lot of studies. Um, mnemonics kick the crap out of not mnemonics on day one. Like, it's unbelievable. It's like, boom, boom. Uh, but when they go back six weeks later, it's actually not even, the mnemonic group is worse. And the reason is that once they forget the mnemonic, they have nothing to fall back on. They don't have actual knowledge. So the mnemonic, yeah, I, okay, so I actually love mnemonics if you listen to the podcast. Um, and so the mnemonics that I use have to be really, really relevant to what I'm doing. So the, the mnemonic that I think probably saved my life when I was training with Weingart before he uh, went, went upstate or whatever, um, was uh, with central lines. And I was like, oh, God, what's ordered? What do you do things in? And like, what, what happens next? And it's just, now we can do lines. Now we can do lines. Needle, wire, cut, dilate, line. And once I just had that in my head, like, now we can do lines, like, I didn't have to get really what's next, what's going on. So that really helped my flow. And that, combined with micro skills, makes me look a little better at central lines. So I think that mnemonics can help, but the evidence on that is mixed. Um, so now let's go to part three, um, music in practice. And as I mentioned uh, at the top of the, of the, of the talk, I, again, I, I don't recommend trying to give your opiate seekers music as therapy because they will, they will, they will kill you. Um, but there are some things we can do. Um, music has been described as having some helpful properties. Band, which is the wrong tempo for CPR, I just want to point that out. 
and no music. And what they found there was that uh, the Nelly elephant helps uh, with uh, the rate of compression being correct, but unfortunately, the depth and quality of compression went down. So maybe, you know, we're chasing our tail here, okay? But there are some things where it might work. And before I talk about music today and juicy, I just want to briefly say, kind of give a conceptual framework for why this might actually have some, some, some relevance. Um, and the idea is, uh, from the 60s, this, this idea of the gated control theory. And the, the idea is, I'm not going to go into these, these neurons because, or, you know, neurology, please. Um, but it's a very simple concept. It's when, whenever you're existing, like right now, you're, anything that happens to you is in context, right? So if you're in, in feeling good, and you're feeling confident, or you feel like you're, something's happening to you for a reason, you can deal with it. The pain of sprinting uh, during your workout is like, you feel good, it's good, right? Whereas if someone forced you to do these things in a labor camp, this would be a bad pain. So our brain knows this, and so we can use distract, distraction techniques, and we can set our patients up to have better experiences. Um, so the woman on the left is giving birth, and um, afterwards, she's gonna feel like she accomplished something. And here's a study. Uh, Two-thirds of women said childbirth was the most painful experience of my life. Oh, and by the way, nothing anyone told me really prepared me for that. And I, I heard it was painful. Uh, so two-thirds, most painful experience of my life. Over half of them said they enjoyed it. Okay, that's, that's got to mean something. Um, and the person on the right is being interrogated by super spy Jack Bauer. And if she survives, she'll be in therapy for the rest of her life. So the, how we experience pain is really a subjective phenomenon that we can kind of control in some way. So that's what this, that's what's going on with the gated control theory, and we can use this. So how about music versus aromatherapy in the waiting room? I love this trial because aromatherapy ended up being the control because it didn't work, uh, and music actually decreased anxiety in their in everyone in the ER, the NT at about 30. Okay. So a couple of studies, music as an aid for post-operative pain, this is a very recent paper, uh, 72 randomized trials, modest reduction in post-operative pain, modest reduction. They used less analgesia, that's a very good thing. More satisfied, okay, no difference in length of stay, but that's good. And the choice of music did not matter, people always ask, oh, what music do you play? And some studies that matter, and this one did. So this is actually an earlier pediatric post-op um, study, same idea, less pain, out of, out of bed faster. That's good. Um, so, and then here's another one, lack repairs, um, intervention with music, a modest but significant decrease in pain, uh, no change in anxiety, but 100% would use again. That's from the Annals of Emergency Medicine, from about 25 years ago. Okay, so I love foam, I love free open access medical education, so that means I love ketamine. Um, so, you know, we give ketamine for procedural sedation, and the fear of complication in the ED, we see a lot of these submergence phenomenon, right? The blood-curdling scream of the patient who is in the K-hole, and they're coming out, and they're having a terrible dream, and you and them and the nurses and the other patients are thinking like they're in the exorcist, and everyone's very unhappy. So there's a whole, there's a whole adage, as you enter the K-hole is how you exit, right? You heard that? So if you have a nice dream, you're gonna wake up having a nice dream, and so the intervention is music. And so people who got nothing, um, eight out of uh, 25 said, not acceptable. We'll never use ketamine again. Please don't give me that, that terrible, awful drug. And when they gave them music, basically everyone said, either no opinion, very small, or very acceptable, and one person is hard to please. So it, it didn't change the number of dreams. The number of dreams was actually the same, but the dreams they had were much nicer, and they were actually much more satisfying. Okay, so let's look at a little bit more literature, uh, music for pain relief, Cochrane. So, okay. Uh, 
who likes a 1 to 10 pain scale? I'm not a huge fan, because everyone's a 10. Um, so in the cockpit, they found a significant decrease by 0.5 points, so 5 to 4.5. So maybe like Michaela Moroni, you're not that impressed. Um, but how about a 50% reduction in pain? That's a pretty good marker. I think that's good. And what the Cochrane interview found was that we were 70% more likely with an NMT of 5 to have a 50% reduction in pain just from music. And in this study, uh, you needed to be told what music. Apparently, death metal is not helping. Um, so that's, uh, that's the Cochrane on that. And then, how about ventilated patients during the ICU? Now, some, some places in, in this city do this. Um, it's not Sinai or I don't know if you guys do it. But there's music being played at that, that fancy ICUs in the city. And um, intubated patients. Fewer benzo requirements, less fentanyl, less propofol requirements. Just from that. Interesting. Vital signs. I like this one. Lower heart rate. Hopefully they're not braiding down. Um, <laughs> respiratory rate goes down. And then interesting. Again, don't do this in sepsis, I guess, right? Because the math goes down too. But I think the idea here is uh, if you have a patient in the ICU who's, who's talking away at about 100, and you can get them down in the 90s just by some music, some intern's not going to like fluid overload them. So that's the idea. So show me the four spots. I know, I know. Okay, so um, left of the, of the line says favors music for lowering heart rate by somewhere between 2 and 10 beats. Anxiety goes down. This is nursing scales and need, need for benzos. Respiratory rate. Okay, so there's not a mortality benefit. Let's just keep it in context. Um, but it is kind of interesting because it, it led me to this. Uh, I discovered what I call the Newman plot. David Newman's one of my mentors at Sinai. And uh, it's number needed to treat on the uh, x-axis and cost on the y-axis. And so like aspirin for, for MI prevention, it's like modest, pretty low cost. A CT for lung cancer screening, very, very high number needed to treat for that, um, fairly expensive. And TPA for strokes, Swami, your favorite topic. I don't know. Yeah, just forget it. <laughs> um, so where's, where's music? Music's down there. It's a low NNT, low cost. Now, that doesn't mean it's the miracle drug, because the z-axis is clinical benefit, right? So the, the clinical benefit's modest. So in a way, this makes me think, like, what's the treatment we want to see? Like, when you read a paper, that's really what you should be thinking. Is it, is it affordable? Is it practical for most patients? And is it actually beneficial? So this is, like, where we want to live. This is where we want our treatments to be. So in a way, music, I think, gives us sort of an idea of what the gold standard for any treatment going on the pipeline should be. So I'm going to wrap up the summary. We are performers. How we enter and how we interact is really important to patient satisfaction and making that alliance, and we make entrances every day at EM, that's our job. Listening is multifaceted. Um, great clinician doesn't necessarily mean great teacher, but a great teacher is, is actually probably more important than a great clinician. Space repetition and uh, having high expectations, I think, will improve our practice. Uh, training should be harder than real life at times, and uh, music can be a valuable treatment adjunct. So that's pretty much it. Uh, as Rich Wong says, residency is rehearsal. And uh, that's it. Just want to thank uh, Natalie May and her body, uh, Langard, Steve Beck, Lauren, my podcast co-host, who taught me everything I know about medical education, and uh, Brett Nelson, and then Sony and the Hitchcock State were very nice to let me use those uh, scripts. So any questions, happy to take them, and again, thanks for having me.